here in Galatians 3 we've got a classic exposition really of the gospel. And just to remind you of really the, the whole basic message here, Paul is saying that the, the gospel was preached, verse 8, to Abraham. And it's not something that just began in the New Testament, it began right back in the Old Testament. And it was preached to Abraham in the form of the promises that were given to him. And he quotes, uh, in thee, that's you singular, shall all nations be blessed. And he talks about how God made promises to Abraham and to his seed, that is his singular descendant. Verse 16, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds or descendants in the plural, but in the singular. And to your seed or to your singular descendant who is Christ. So then God promised Abraham that him and his descendant in the singular, that is Jesus, would be a blessing to all the world, would uh, eternally inherit the earth, etc. And yet he also promised that that singular seed would become many, as many as the stars in the sky. And then he goes on in 27 to 29 to say that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, you've clothed yourselves with him, in him there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male nor female, for you are all one man in Christ Jesus. And I emphasize the, uh, the Greek there, you are all one man in Christ Jesus. Why one man, one, uh, one male person, Christ? Because Jesus was male. In other words, all of us, male or female or whoever, are all made one by being in this singular personal being called Jesus and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's seed singular and heirs plural according to the promise what promise? the promise that Abraham and his seed would inherit the earth forever and would be a blessing to all nations so then the basis of our salvation is the fact that we are in Christ and that therefore all that is true of him becomes true of us. As he was the the seed or the descendant of Abraham, so are we. As he was to be a blessing and bring blessing upon all the earth, so are we to do that in this life, and so we shall eternally do. So Jesus could say, I am the light of the world, and yet he also says, you are the light of the world. So you see then that this idea of being brethren in Christ not so much brothers and sisters of Christ but in him this is absolutely crucial because we are not strong enough to stop sinning and even if we were to stop sinning if if we had a, a steel will that could somehow not sin ever again the fact is we have all already sinned and one sin brings death Adam and Eve is the, the classic example of that so then the way of escape The way out is beautiful, really. Uh, It's by becoming in Christ. And he emphasizes that this this begins with baptism into Christ. And uh, this is, I think, what's behind what he says in verse 1, where he, he says, Before your eyes, Jesus Christ has been placarded forth like on a placard, written, it's from the Greek word graphos, to write, uh, crucified among you. So before their eyes, before the eyes of the Galatians, Jesus Christ has been placarded forth, he's been written out, 
as if he was crucified amongst them. It's as if they had seen the crucifixion. And Paul is referring to his own preaching. <clears throat> Paul is saying that in the same way as <clears throat> Christ is uh, our representative before God, so are we his representatives on this earth. So you see the idea of representation works two ways. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, Jesus is our representative, not our substitute. That, that is uh, correct. But it works two ways. It cuts the other way. He is our representative. And yet we also thereby and therefore are to be his representatives on this earth. And so in that sense, Paul could say that they had seen Jesus crucified. In that, they had met Paul. He says in Galatians 2.20, just a couple of verses before that, I am crucified with Christ. And in that sense, he can say, and therefore, Galatians 3 verse 1, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was set forth, was written out, was placarded, crucified amongst you. So in a sense, in his own way, Paul allowed the word, which is Christ, to become flesh in him. So that those who met him, who heard his preaching, in that sense met Jesus and saw Christ crucified. When it says later in Galatians <clears throat> chapter 6 verse 17, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Yes, he could be referring to the uh, stigmata, the, um, the branding of a slave, as if to say, well that's branded in my body that I am his servant. <clears throat> but he... <clears throat> He could also be saying, I am so crucified with Christ that it is as if I have got the, uh, the marks of the nails in my hands uh, and in, in, my, in my feet, just as he has to this day. Now, this is therefore how we should preach. In the sense that we also, to use a theological uh, word, <clears throat> incarnate Jesus. That in the same way as he was God's word made into flesh, so we also are to be the same. That when people meet with us, they as it were meet with Jesus. And that's why he can say in Galatians 4 verse 14 that when I first preached the gospel to you, he says, you accepted me even as Christ Jesus. Now this adds a bit more depth to his comment in Acts 17.3 where he says, he talks about this Jesus whom I preach unto you he didn't only have in mind the words that he was speaking to them, but when he says, this Jesus whom I preach unto you, it's in the fullness of, of, of the meaning of those words, that I am Jesus to you. As that uh, song says, let me be the Christ to you. And this is why the body of Christ, of course, refers to him personally, but it is us. He has no other eyes or <clears throat> arms or legs or face in this world apart from us. That's why he appeals to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 in the RSV. He can say that he is to them the face of Christ. Now, when Paul came to preach the gospel to them, he came, he says, through infirmity of the flesh. <coughs> That's in chapter 4, um, <clears throat> verse 13. For infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and you didn't despise the, uh, the weakness that, that was uh, in my flesh, but you received me as if I was Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 14. 
so what he's saying is that <clears throat> he had some physical weakness while he was there. And in the way that he managed his illness or his handicap, in whatever form it was, they saw Christ in him. They even saw the crucified Christ in him. Because before their eyes, the crucified Christ was placarded forth. And so in our management of our humanity, of our weakness, of our maybe physical infirmity, infirmity, weakness of the flesh in whatever way it is, we can show men and women the essence of Christ. Because let's face it, the people amongst whom we live do not read their Bibles. They actually don't know much about Jesus personally. And the only glimpse they get of him is in you and me. So then, he, uh, he says in chapter 3 verse 1 there that he was placarding or writing forth Christ crucified amongst them before their eyes. The only other time you read about the eyes of the Galatians is in chapter 4 verse 15. He said, when I first preached the gospel to you, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now that could be a reference to Paul's weak eyesight, that they so loved him that they could have pulled out their own eyes and given them to him. And that may be so, but it's a bit strange that the language there used, the original Greek words there, is exactly the same as in Matthew 5 verse 29, where he says that if your eye offends you, you should pluck it out. And he means that if there is some weakness in your life, you should pull it out, even if it's as painful uh, and requires the level of self-control and self-will that it would require to literally uh, put your fingernails behind your eye sockets and somehow gouge out your own eye. So I think what he's uh, saying is, when I preach the gospel to you, I manifested Christ crucified to you and you were so impressed by him that you really would have plucked out the eye that offends and given it away. So I, I think that uh, what he's saying is that the, the power of the crucified Christ was so great that it could inspire men and women to that level of change. And this is of course what we're here for. We want inspiration. We all know we've got demons in our lives. We all know that we have the eye and the foot and the hand that offends. And we also all know <clears throat> that we are somehow lacking in that strength uh, of purpose to, to pull that out. And I think he's saying, you saw Christ crucified. You got it. It was as if the video, the movie of Christ being crucified was played out right in front of your eyes and you responded by pulling out your eyes and giving them to me. That you plucked out the eye that, that offended. <clears throat> so then, he's so emphasized this fact that uh, he was a manifestation of Christ, but in fact it wasn't just him, that all those that are baptized into Christ are in that sense him. And this is of course why we should watch our behavior because we are him and his witness and his body in this world and people have no other glimpse of him apart from the glimpse of him that they see in us and yet it also means something else it means that we should feel uh, and respond uh, and react very positively to all those that are truly baptized into Christ 
he had a difficult relationship with the Galatians. They were turning away. Chapter 4, verse 11, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labour in vain. They were pretty clearly uh, going wrong. He, he, he makes that point in, in a number of places here. He says, you know, who, who has bewitched you? You, you really uh, are losing it. That's what he's saying. Um, you are foolish, chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 3 again, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? And you could um, put together uh, a, a case that uh, they had actually been turned against Paul. He says, chapter 4, 16, Am I therefore become your enemy now? They had been uh, stirred up by these Judaizers uh, against Paul. And he says, uh, verse 19 of chapter 4, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So, yeah, it's a pretty sad picture really here with these, uh, these Galatians. Uh, he keeps warning them to, to, to really uh, come back. Um, and yet, he is so positive about them. Yeah, he, he says things like, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us. Verse 14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And then chapter 3, 27 to 29, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You are all, all you Galatians, you are all the children of God, because you're in Christ. Because those of you who have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Chapter 4, 6 and 7, and because you are sons, 7, you are no more a servant, but a son, an heir of God through Christ. 4 verse 31, we, brethren, you and me, the Galatians and Paul, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So, although they were so weak, and although they were personally against him, they counted him their enemy. Yet, he was so positive about them because of their status in Christ. Because, you know, he says in chapter 3 there, <clears throat> that because you've been baptised into Christ, verse 27, you are Christ's. And I think he's almost writing that as a sort of note to self, uh, to remind himself of how he should be feeling towards them. So, this has got colossal implications. The fact that we are in Christ means that all those others who have been baptised into him are him. No matter what difficulties we have in our personal relationships with them, no matter how far they may have strayed from him, we cannot judge in the sense of personally condemning people. We cannot say, you are no longer part of God's family. It's not for us to say that. Jesus warns us very strongly not to think like that, not to say that, not to even go there. Now, if we cannot condemn our brother or sister in Christ, then what can we do? It's only left for us to accept them then as our brother or sister in Christ. Now, this idea can spark off a whole upward spiral, I think, of positive thinking about others. And it's that which uh, we all find so difficult because we're all so easily upset by each other. And of course, if we really believe that this is all true for me, that I shall be saved, 
then we become more uh, touched by God's grace and more positive about others. Whereas if we just sort of hold all this at arm's length and are not sure whether we ourselves will be saved, we tend to be negative to others. Uh, Jesus uh, sort of says this earlier in Matthew 23:13, where he says to the Pharisees, you neither go in to God's kingdom yourselves, neither do you suffer those who are entering to go in. There's a sort of psychological connection there between not wanting to go into God's kingdom yourself or not believing you shall go in and therefore being negative about others going in there. Well, we could uh, stop there and just accept all that. But as he does in Romans and Colossians, so he does here in Galatians. He uh, Paul explains a little bit of the, the mechanism by which this is possible. Because all of us are sitting here uh, thinking in our minds, but I'm a sinner. I'm a big time sinner. How can this be true for me? Nice idea. But the point is, it's not a nice idea. This is an actual reality. That we are counted as Christ. That by status, as I like to put it, we are in him and counted as if we are him. By God. Well, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law was the curse for disobedience, and we're all sitting here thinking, yep, but I'm disobedient. Uh, Being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That does not mean that the simple fact of physically hanging somebody up on a tree thereby cursed them. I think what it means is that everyone who is crucified is a cursed sinner, is someone who has been convicted of sin and hung up there. So Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner, although he was not. He, in that sense, so identified with our sins, and I think that that is, uh, in my own mind, that is the answer to, to his not panic, but his, uh, his cry of despair at the end, my God, why or how much have you forsaken me? God keeps on saying in the Old Testament scriptures, I will not forsake the righteous, but I will forsake the sinner. And he so identified with us that he, he felt as if he was a sinner, although he personally was not. And so, he, in that sense, carried our sins. So what happened there when the Lord Jesus died on the cross was the final end of the problem of sin. And all those that are identified with his body, his body which hung there, carrying our sin, his body which resurrected, we who are baptized into that body, We are counted as him and we shall therefore rise again and live forever. Death and sin has no more power over us. Although, as Paul says in Romans 7, we do continue in the flesh sinning. But by status, we are in Christ. Now, going on a little bit further with this uh, idea of, of grace, we come to the idea of 
the, the covenant that God gave to Abraham and that it's different to the law. See verse 18, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he's saying then that um, God promised Abraham and his seed, Jesus, uh, eternity and salvation, the kingdom. And then he says, verse 20, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, really, what on earth does this mean? I did say some years ago that I, I, I thought that that verse is perhaps one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to explain. So, after a few years thought, here's my crack at it. He's talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And I think what he's saying is that that was a unilateral, one-sided commitment to Abraham. Now, typically covenants were two-sided. One side said, well, I will do this, that, and the other, and here's my conditions. And the other person said, yes, and I will do this, that, and the other, and here's my conditions. You remember in Genesis 15, when God confirms this covenant, there's a horror of great darkness, speaking of death. And there are pieces of slain animals laid out, and God walks through the midst of it. And Abraham just stands there, pretty scared, but he doesn't do anything. And that's it. Now, the idea of the dead animals in the, cer- in the ceremony was really, I think, to say, so may I be dismembered, may I be killed and cut up and die if I don't keep my promise. That's why in Jeremiah 34, 18... Uh, we read there that the Israelites must die because they had passed between the pieces of dead animal sacrifices in making a covenant. But in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't have to do that. It's God himself, the God who cannot die, who says that I will do this. May I die if I don't keep my promise. In a strange way, I think he, he showed himself for real in the death of his son. Uh, and that's why the death of Jesus confirmed the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's why we take the, the cup of wine as the cup of the new covenant. Not that the new covenant is uh, in that, that blood, it's not in red liquid. The covenant is a promise. And yet God has confirmed that by the death of Jesus. And so he, he talks in verse 17 about the covenant was, was confirmed by God in Christ. And you've got the same in Romans 15 verse 8 where the death of Jesus is what confirmed the new covenant. And the new covenant is the promises made to Abraham. There's this uh, paradox that the new covenant was in fact based upon promises that were given before the old covenant, which was the law of Moses. So one reason for the cross, and of course uh, it's multifactorial, but one reason for the cross, I think, is to uh, confirm to us how dead serious uh, God is about his promise. It's as if he's saying, well, look, you know, I promised Abraham that him and his seed will live forever, and that they, they will have kingdom, blessing, eternity, etc., eternal inheritance. Now, if you're in Christ, then ye, that becomes true of you. So the death of Christ in that sense was, uh, uh, was sort of um, 
under the tyranny of words here, but in one sense it was not necessary in the sense that God can do what he wants as he wants, and you, you can't draw a circle around God and say, well, therefore you have to act in this way or that way. And yet why then was it done? Why was there this death of Christ on the cross to confirm the covenant? I think it is so that as we uh, try to play the movie again of him hanging there, we see God pleading with us that, look, I am serious. This is to show how certain is the promise that I made all those millennia ago to Abraham, to him and to his seed. And so, in our doubt, which, let's be honest, we all at some point in our lives have, will I be saved? Shall all this ultimately come to term for me? Is this true for me? It may be true for others, but will it be true for me? Are my sins and my dysfunctions and my weaknesses, are they really not going to be just too big a barrier between God and myself? And the answer is no. And the confirmation of that answer is in the death of Christ. That he died to confirm us. And this is why there is this colossal importance uh, attached to baptism. That we, through that act, become part of the seed. Now, Paul is not writing here to unbelievers trying to persuade people to get baptised. He's writing to people who have been baptised, just like he is in Romans 6. The Romans have been baptised. And what he's trying to teach these people is what we need to be taught ourselves. Remember the colossal importance and significance and meaning of your baptism. You know, he says there in Galatians 3, uh, 26, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are all, all you Galatians, one man in Christ Jesus. Now, whether that means all the Galatian believers are going to be ultimately saved, only God knows, because it's pretty clear that they were uh, just walking away from all this. This is the tragedy of it. This is uh, Paul's pain here in this, in this letter. 4.19, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So God has made a unilateral covenant. This is grace. This is what grace is all about. I will do this for you. That's it. There's Abraham, scared stiff, standing there in the horror of great darkness, thinking, what's all this? This is a one-sided covenant with me. And we struggle, don't we, with the same thing. Is his grace really that wonderful? And there's something uh, wired into our nature, I think, that, that wants to do it ourselves, just like little children. I want to do it my way. I don't want you to help me. I want to do it. I want to, you know, uh, learn by experience. I can do it. I must try my little best to do this job. And we can't. And it's as simple as that. But there is something wired into us that is like that. And this is the, the challenge of grace. That, no, this is a one-sided unilateral promise. You want to believe it? You believe it. So then, the law, verse 24, was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And this uh, 
Greek word there for schoolmaster, uh, pedagogos, is the slave who led the children to the school teacher. Now the school teacher, the schoolmaster, is Christ. And we are being led to him by, by the law. In what sense? I don't think this means that people who lived under the law in the Old Testament times figured out all the types and shadows and got it all right and therefore and thereby understood Jesus. Because he, he says there, um, verse 23, before faith came, and he talks about the faith of Jesus Christ, 22, um, before faith came we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. That faith was not revealed then. I get no impression from the Old Testament that people like David or Moses or whatever uh, studied the law of Moses, figured it all out and said, yep, that's Jesus. They, they may have, in a very shadowy way, figured out some things. But I think that they were shut up unto that. And you've got it really put in so many words in Ephesians 3 verse 5, where Paul says that in other ages the things of Christ were not made known to men as they were revealed in the New Testament by the preaching of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets, Peter says, 1 Peter 1.12, seem to understand that the things they saw and wrote were not so much for themselves as for us. So then, in what sense then was the law uh, as a, uh, a slave leading us to the school teacher who is Christ? Only in the sense that the law accentuated human sin. That the law persuaded men and women <clears throat> of their sinfulness. And it was, <coughs> it was that which led people to Christ. And so it is with us. That we are led to him and we are led to believe in this unilateral offer of grace by our own experience of sin. This is the whole point, that God works through human sin. He doesn't just turn away from it and say, yuck, <clears throat> if that's what you do or that's what you did or said or felt, I'm out of here with you, that's the end. No, he works through those failures to bring us to him. And so, we now come closer to take the, uh, the bread and wine, we come closer to our part in that covenant, to accepting this blood of the covenant. Not, as I say, that the, <clears throat> the covenant required uh, red blood, the red liquid that was in the veins of the Lord Jesus, uh, to kind of come true. Because God had already made the covenant of salvation to Abraham right back at the start. And he said it, and so it was true. He didn't need to produce some red liquid to prove it. But Jesus died in the way that he, he did, partly, as I say, it's multifactorial, but partly to demonstrate to us, to we who doubt, the utter certainty of our salvation. And so then, we who are from many backgrounds, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, you know, financially, uh, maybe slave or free works out in our language, in our jargon, as uh, financially independent, um, made it, retired, got a good pension, uh, or in slavery, you know. 
working stuck in the shelves of the, of the supermarket um, for minimum wage, no male nor female, because you are all one man in Christ Jesus. Now, New Testament Christianity, with uh, Jew and Gentile meeting together, slave and free meeting together, eldership in the, in the church based upon spiritual qualification rather than wealth or social standing, male and female united, not some religions for men, some for women, or religion being really the, the hobby of rich males. Um, this uh, was, well, it's been described by, by David Bosch as uh, a sociological impossibility, that it couldn't really be that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, met together in the way that they did. But they did. And this is exactly why the Lord Jesus can say in John 17 that our unity will be enough to convert the world. And it was in the first century. But it all messed up because the Jews went their way, the Gentiles went their way, the Gentile believers started to be anti-Semitic, and the Jews went back to the law and ditched uh, salvation in Christ. Slave and free, that sort of uh, all fell apart because the rich people took over leadership in the church, male and female, well, the blokes kind of took over, um, and, you know, the whole thing broke up. And so the mess happened. And yet we who have tried to revive first century Christianity are trying to get through all this and are come back to that position where what is a sociological impossibility uh, becomes true again in the eyes of the 21st century world. That strange unity that there ought to be amongst us really should be enough to make secular people, of whom this world is increasingly full, stop dead in their tracks. How can it be that you guys are such a strange group of people, and yet you are also united. There obviously is a question on what basis, and the basis is that we are all one man in Christ Jesus, that we are him. And so really, the ecclesia, the church, should be a, a kind of a nexus, as it were, without any analogy in human society, that really does make people stop in their tracks. Now, how can this come to be? Well, it can only come to be if we have been led by our experience of our own failure, every single one of us, to Christ, to baptism into him, to knowing that we are saved, to feeling the wonder of the fact that God Almighty has made a one-way covenant with me, a unilateral promise, and that I, who am a sinner, am counted as if I am none less than the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace.